Welcome back, everybody, to the No Fouls podcast, a production of Uncommon Media. And I am incredibly excited for today's guest, someone that I don't think I've really met in person before, maybe called a game or two, but there's lots to learn. And I did a little deep diving getting ready for this. Our guest today was a former player of the year in the state of Indiana, an Indiana Basketball Hall of Famer in 2011, the Silver Anniversary Team, led Dartmouth to four Ivy League championships and has led CVU to five titles, nine straight finals appearances at one point. I am very excited to have Coach Uta Otley on No Fouls. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure having you. And first of all, tell us a little bit about growing up playing basketball in Indiana in the absolute like peak of Larry Bird and the Indiana Hoosiers. That's got to be pretty cool. Uh, it, it is. It, uh, it was. Um, I have to say my father was a huge Bob Knight fan, Indiana fan. So, uh, and basketball was the sport in, in our household, much like everybody else in Indiana. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunities to see a lot of good basketball to learn. There was so much enthusiasm about basketball, um, in my childhood that, uh, yeah, I, it was a benefit that I didn't really understand until I left Indiana and because I kind of always assumed everybody was like that, right? Like that they loved basketball in New York and they were going to love basketball in New Hampshire and everywhere else that I lived. Um, and that wasn't the case, but I didn't really, you know, when you're growing up, you know, ignorance is bliss. You just don't know. So, um, but I, now that I have perspective, I realize what a incredible um, kind of basketball background I was provided uh, by luck of where I grew up. Yeah, it's funny. You can even see it on like a smaller scale in Vermont. Like I grew up at Hazen in Hardwick where it is a basketball town and the whole town comes out to every game. And then I moved on to Colchester and it was a soccer school and it was just completely different atmospheres. Yeah, that that's an interesting thing um, here in Vermont. I agree with you on that. And I would say... I'm sure there were pockets in Indiana where, you know, wrestling was the big sport or swimming was the big sport. Um, I just didn't know about any of those schools. <laughs> I only knew, uh, you know, the the league where we grew up uh, or the league that I played in as, as I was growing up was um, a, a bunch of schools that really prioritized their basketball. And so um, I think uh, I was lucky and, and, and I had the family background for it too. You know, my dad being a, uh, boys basketball, high school basketball coach. I, it was it was kind of predetermined that that's what our family was going to do from the get go. Uh, but I don't I don't regret it a bit. I I I think it was a an awesome way to grow up for sure. Did your dad coach you at all? He did. He coached me uh, in AAU once uh, I was in high school um, and was you know, the, all the informal coaching uh, that went on. I would I would call him. Um, through most of once once I showed a real interest in it, which was probably around twelve or thirteen years old, 
I'd say he kind of took on a role of almost as like a personal trainer as far as, you know, we played a lot of one-on-one in the backyard. We, um, he'd, he'd rebound no matter what time of day, what kind of conditions it was outside. If I asked him to rebound, he was out there rebounding. Um, and then when we got to high school, AAU was just starting. It was a very new concept. And at that time, um, you know, only kids who uh, aspired to play college basketball played AAU. Nobody else was playing that. So he formed a team of basically the top two players from every team in our conference, put us all together and and took us around Indiana and had us play in AAU tournaments against other um, teams from other communities. And, uh, and it was great. And it definitely back then AAU was, I mean, there were, there were, it wasn't kids just trying to make their high school team. It was only kids who were, were going on to play college, but yeah. So my dad and I spent more than a few hours, uh, on the basketball court together. That's for sure. I've been really interested since I had kids and mine are still young. Uh, and I've asked a few coaches on the show about it. And you have a unique perspective. How did your relationship with your dad and that him coaching you relate or make an impression on you when it became time to coach your daughter? It had a huge impact. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I had a pretty clear uh, what not to do list of all the things I could remember that my dad did that really Uh, got under my skin when I was in high school or just things that uh, I thought to myself, boy, you know, if, if I had to do it all over again, I sure wish my dad hadn't done the following things. Um, And so with my own kid, it became really important to separate when I was being coach and when I was being mom. And my dad struggled to turn off the the coach aspect sometimes when he got Mm -hmm. home. So it always felt like I couldn't get away from it. He pushed and, and I am, I'd say I'm 90% grateful for how hard he pushed um, when I was in high school, because I don't think I would have become a division one college basketball player if he hadn't, hadn't constantly kind of demanded that I get better in certain areas and keep being dissatisfied with, with where I was and could I get better? Could I be faster? Could I jump higher? Could I, you know, could I be more accurate? Could I stretch my range? Like those kinds of pushing, I kind of made up my mind uh, when I had kids that it was going to have to be their journey. If my kid asked me to rebound, I was going to be out there rebounding for her. But I, when we left the gym, I turned it off. And if she chose to spend all weekend not getting shots up, I was keeping my mouth shut. Like th- those were some some lessons um, because I, I came to the conclusion um, pretty early as a parent, like you can't want things for your kids more than your kids want things. I mean, you can, but it, it never works out. So trying to basically say to my own children, like, hey, I want you to find what you love and go after it as hard as you can. And if that ends up being the violin, then I am going to buy tickets to every concert and I'm going to sit in the stands and I'm going to cheer your violin playing, whatever it is, but it's, it's got to be driven by you. I'm available. I'm a resource for you. I will give you everything I got if you want it, but I am not, I'm not, we're not going to, our relationship's not going to be based on once you get your hundred free throws shot, then we can talk about what's for lunch. Like we we just can't do that. That's not, that's not the way our house was going to roll. So, and I think for the most part, it, it went 
it went better. It, I, I feel like my daughter came out of her experience with me a little less scathed than I came out of my uh, high school experience with my dad. And it's all great now. And once I got to college, all of the things that drove me bananas about my dad's persistent coaching uh, kind of dissipated and went away. And so it's, uh, but, but yeah, we had a more peaceful uh, experience, I think, than I had with my parents. Do you lean on your assistance when it came to your daughter? We talked to a couple coaches who said they were worried, am I being too easy? Am I being too hard? And they would really kind of rely on their assistance when it came to whether or not they needed to push or criticize their kid. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Kathy Kolash had an in in-depth relationship with Sadie Otley through those four years, for sure. Um, and, you know, as the ex- expectations on her grew, I think I think um, everybody forgets, you know, as a ninth and a 10th grader, she was playing with a superstar class that was two years older than her, that there wasn't a whole lot for her to have to do. But once she became, once they graduated, and then it, it the pressure and kind of the responsibility fell on her, there was definitely... Um, significant need for Kathy to relay some of the messaging that I was not going to be able to um, deliver as fairly as I would to my other players. So I think Kathy was a great uh, go-between for us when I would say, you know, I hate the way Sadie is doing the following things. And that's I was probably going to express that to her the same way that I expressed, Sadie, you got to clean up your room before you go out tonight or whatever, whatever it was. And Kathy would step right in and say it in a way that that Sadie would could receive it and fix it. And so, yeah, that was a it, I was very lucky to have Kathy to to really be one on the same page with me, be so well respected by all of the kids that it was easy for Sadie to take instruction from her. And, um, yeah, that, that, it definitely helps. Like if I would, I would never go it alone. I would never have wanted to coach my daughter by myself. I think the, the assistant coaches really made a big difference. Let's go back a little bit. You're coming out of school. You have eyes on Notre Dame from what I read, but you tear your ACL in a senior showcase at a mm-hmm. time when it's not a quick eight, nine month rehab and you're good to go. How does that all lead to you heading Northeast? So the ACL tear happened at a showcase the summer um, between my junior and senior year. And I, uh, at the time, Notre Dame was 45 minutes from my house Um they, I thought they would, would be a perfect fit for me from an academic and athletic standpoint. And I had had uh, quite a few conversations with their coaching staff at that point. And I remember that they were at in the gym at that showcase. And I, it, it's the saddest story. I, it was a five-day showcase. They, they, they used to do like full-on camps back then that you went for five days. And the first three days of that camp were the best three days of high school basketball I ever played. And uh, on day four, I, it was a lock. Notre Dame was following me around the camp. Like I knew it was a done deal. And uh, on day four came down with a rebound kind of in a collision and got knocked backwards and 
my knee hyperextended. And as soon as it went, I thought to myself, boy, that sure didn't feel right. Something just went very wrong with my leg. Um, and my dad picked me up that afternoon, went straight to the hospital. The doctor, who was a high school friend of my father's, because that, it's small town Indiana, not not unlike probably what, what you've experienced at Hazen, but the um, the orthopedist basically takes a look at my knee. There's no MRI technology back then or anything like that to, to determine. And he's basically just said, uh, I'm going to stick a needle in your knee. And if it comes out blood, then you're going into surgery tomorrow. And if it comes out clear, then, you know, your, your body's just reacting to a, a bad jolt and we'll figure it out. And so, you know, they stick a syringe in my really swollen knee and it's, it's blood. And he's like, you're going into surgery tomorrow. And then listening with one of the hardest part of really the whole thing was listening to him, my dad say, cause I remember my dad right off the bat, like how long will it take before she can play again? And the doctor looking at my dad and being like, John, a surgery like this, we're going to see if we can get her to walk regularly again. And then, then like, he's like, I think you really need to put playing basketball off the table for the time being. And, uh, that was, and that was before the surgery even happened. Um, and then, and because, and that, of course, you know, you go home that night and you do whatever research you can do back before we have telephones and computers that do it for us. And, um, the only story I could find was that Bernard King for the New York Knicks had blown out his ACL and had never been the same and retired shortly thereafter, you know, came back, tried to play, couldn't, could never return to his previous form and just ended it. So it was a pretty daunting diagnosis. It was a bummer. Uh, the surgery was terrible. Back then they put you in a hip to toe cast for um, six to eight weeks and just let your leg wither down to absolutely nothing. And then had to build it back up. And I was so blessed to have a physical therapist who was young and ambitious, who said to me, what do you want out of this whole thing? And I said, I wanna play the first game of my senior year. You've got five and a half months. I'll do anything you tell me to do, anything, but I need to play by this date on the calendar. And he's like, do you mean that? Or are you gonna blow off half the things I tell you to do. And I was like, I will do anything. I, because at that point, like my identity as a future college basketball player was front and center. Like there was just no option yep. that that wasn't going to happen for me. So the idea that, you know, well, you're just going to stop playing basketball is unthinkable. Like, there's just no way. And so I'll tell you, they, they had terrible, I mean, again, it was such rudimentary technology compared to what's available today. They threw an old Lennox Hill brace on my leg. They, and I mean, that PT, he had me running in the pool before school at 7 a.m. He had me coming to the, um, to the office right after school to go through all of the train, the strength training and the conditioning and the ultrasound and all of it. And then I'd have to do a workout after dinner when I got home. And then it would start again the next morning, round the clock, seven days a week. It was brutal, but it was my only option. And I think back on how it so changed my perspective about everything. And, it, and I stopped taking so many things for granted, like 
the ability to get off the floor whenever I felt like it, like to just, you know, and to just react and just be faster and bigger than other kids. All of a sudden now it had to be, I had to be smarter than other kids. I had to play the angles because I did lose a step in my quickness and my lateral movement, things like that. So, but uh, the PT got me out on the court for that first, I got released the week before, um, actually, the week after tryouts began, I got released. I met all of the criteria, and I played for three years with a brace on that leg. I was so afraid to ever take that brace off. Um, but that whole thing, um, Notre Dame walked away. They actually asked me, they told me if I would walk on for my freshman year, they wanted to see how my legs would hold up. And if I held up, then they would think about scholarshiping me for the next three years. And the thing that that changed as they kind of stepped away is that Dartmouth, who had also been in the gym for that exact same showcase, um, had written me a letter that week. I couldn't even I didn't even know what it was. I called it Dartmouth. It was terrible. It was so embarrassing. Um, I didn't know what like New Hampshire. I'd never been east of Ohio. Like that was so not an option for me. Like, but they were so persistent. And I told them about the ACL surgery. They came and did a home visit and I was still in that hip to toe cast. And they did a home visit and talked to my parents and convinced them um, that Dartmouth was going to be an awesome experience for me that, um, you know, that the education would, would make all the difference in my future and that I should really give it some thought. And as my senior year rolled along, like they just, they never, they came from New Hampshire. They came to at least four of my high school games in Indiana. They wanted it. Um, and that, that kind of loyalty, it paid off. I mean, that, that was, um, that's what it really came down to, which coaches did I feel like believed in me the most. And that's how I ended up at Dartmouth. And boy, was that the greatest accidental uh, event of my life. You know, thank goodness I ended up there. And I've read in a few different pieces and quotes from you, how much of an impact your coach at Dartmouth made on you? Uh, was she kind of the first one who really made that much of an impression on you? Um, I, I won't say she's the first one because my high school coach was also in a very different way, um, really foundational to my becoming a coach and, and what I do as a coach, um, because my high school coach was um, a master of the little things, right? And a, fun, and a guy who just demanded the fundamentals, um, which I, I, you know, there is no opportunity for me at Dartmouth if I hadn't had a high school coach that great. Uh, but Jackie Hulla, who was my college coach at Dartmouth, she was the first coach I ever had that figured out how to make a team really be greater than its individual parts and how to foster uh, that type of relationship between basketball players, um, both on and off the court, but on the court and really convinced um, a bunch of 18 to 22 year old women that if they played smart and used their brains and, and conspired against the other team, that you could beat anybody that you could beat a team out of the big 10. You could beat a team out of the sec. You could be anybody. And our senior year we did because she made us believe it. And so the power of that kind of faith that somebody has in you and she, and let's be clear. I mean, I've never played for anybody more demanding and not ever. Like I, I have yet to see a coach that I've thought to myself, boy, that coach really gets after 
their kids the same way Jackie used to get after us. I mean, she was demanding, but, um, but every single one of us knew like, look at how much better we are because she pushes us like this. Look at how much better we are because, um, because we've all bought in to what she is trying to get out of us. And we see, she got us to see ourselves the way she saw us as a group of, you know, women who could, who could win any basketball game, you know? And I mean, I think about how cocky, cocky is the wrong word, how confident we were walking into UConn. We played at UConn my senior year and that Gino was a young, he was probably a second or a third year coach, young. Um, His teams weren't in the final four regularly yet, but they were still really good. And we we expected to win that game. I mean, we ended up losing by 12, I think, but we played that game like, you know, like we could play anybody. There, there was no team that, that we feared. And you really don't see that happen uh, from Ivy League sports a whole lot because we, we're not on scholarship. We know that, you know, and that, that philosophy that, you know, well, if you could have gotten a full ride, you would have gone and taken the full ride. The five women that came in with my class, um, the actually there were six of us at the start, but five that ended, um, all of us had Division One scholarship offers in other places, every single one of us. But we chose to go to Dartmouth because we wanted the education and because those coaches were such spectacular <laughs> recruiters and really made you want to play for them. So, um, yeah, it was it was a, just an incredible experience. But that um you know, I always think to myself how lucky I am that that's how that turned out and that I ended up at Dartmouth and that I had the experience of four years with Jackie Hullo that I got, uh, because I do think it, it dramatically changed me as a person. Do you still stay in touch with Jackie and those other girls that you went in there with? Um, the, the women I see twice sometimes three times a year ever without we without fail. We do reunions at Dartmouth all the time, whenever we can COVID jammed us up a little bit, but other than that, um, we tend to be involved in everybody's big stuff like weddings and children being born. Uh, actually one of my college teammates brought her daughter. They live in Maryland right now. Her daughter is a rising ninth grader. She brought her up and stayed at our house for a week so her daughter could do our CVU basketball camp this summer. So that she, and she's like, you have, she says to me, you have to fix her foul shot. And because she knew she's like, back then I was kind of like the foul shot person. And so um, we're going to like, so those relationships that we had at 18 to 22, they're the same now that we're in our fifties. It hasn't changed. Um, Jackie, I'm in touch with in, usually once a year. She's the head coach now at Carnegie Mellon down um, in Pennsylvania. And I keep watching for, you know, my next player that wants to be an engineer that I can send down there to play for her. Um, she, she recruited Sadie hard. Um, that didn't work out for her, but uh, Sadie was not going to Pennsylvania. She just, she had her mind made up and I think Sadie wanted her own experience. She didn't want to play for my coach. So um, fair. But yeah, we're still we're still all very much in touch. And Jackie is the first person. Um, something shows up the years when we were winning uh, state championships. The first thing that arrived at my house was a a balloon or a a planter or something from Jackie Hola because she's I know she follows our our those of us who went into coaching. She follows our career. She knows what what we're up to. So you move on and you pursue your masters in education. 
at Long Island University. Is that when you start dabbling in coaching? Because I saw your first gig, I believe, was Jericho High School in Long Island. That is right. Um, actually, it, it, the Masters came secondary. So I spent my first year out of Dartmouth at um, at Coopers and Librand, which was a big six accounting firm in Boston. The year after Dartmouth, I had gone through corporate recruiting, did the whole thing, thought I was going to go to the big city and make a lot of money and um, and love that kind of work. And after a year, it became really clear I did not. Uh, it was not making me jump out of bed in the morning. It was tough. And I spent a year without basketball in my life for the first time since I'd been, you know, since I could remember and I missed it. So um, I relocated to Long Island for a boy who's now my husband, Uh, but I relocated to Long Island. And the first thing I saw in the paper the week I got there was Jericho High School was looking for a varsity basketball coach. And I thought to myself, while I'm waitressing to pay the bills and what I, whatever I'm doing just to kind of fill time till I figure out what I'm going to do with myself now that I've decided um, corporate life was not really it for me, um, I got hired by Jericho High School to be their basketball coach. And then the AD came back to me and said, we actually need a volleyball coach too. And I see you also played high school volleyball. Will you be our volleyball coach? And I said, sure. So I was the varsity volleyball and the varsity basketball coach for Jericho high school, my first year. Um, And by, I don't know, six weeks into it, I came to the realization that um, the best way to be able to earn a living and also be able to coach, which I knew pretty quickly I was going to want to do was I needed to get certified to teach. And so at that time, New York had, had a program where basically I could get certified to teach in a year based on the work that I'd done at undergrad. Um, so that year I was coaching, I was going to school at night, late at night and on the weekends to meet my course requirements. I did my student teaching that spring, that first year, And then Jericho High School hired me to be a social studies teacher and to be their varsity basketball coach after that. Um, And, you know, it's funny because I I, my student teaching was in the middle school with a bunch of seventh graders. And I have to say that at the end of the student teaching experience, I was like, what in God's name have I done? Like, I can't do this. This is terrible. Like, I do not like middle school kids. I'm just telling you that right now. That is not the level of maturity I was uh, seeking. And so they hired me to teach 10th and 11th graders, uh, US history and world history. And uh, three weeks into it, I was like, I literally had the thought, I'll never do anything else ever again. This is it. This is the best job I could ever ask for. And so that, you know, I, I looked and I was resisting becoming a teacher because both of my parents were teachers, right? Like I, I had watched their lives. I'd spent my entire life with my mom with a stack of papers, English papers. My mom was an English teacher. She had English essays on her lap everywhere we went through my entire childhood. Like it never let up. And so I really didn't think I wanted to be a teacher because I just it just looked like it was so much work and I knew it wasn't a lot of money. And I thought, I, I don't know. I thought I, I wanted to be something else. And so I'd resisted and resisted and resisted. And then once I did it, I was like, what was I doing? Like all of this, I don't want to be my mother energy was just keeping me from doing the thing I was going to love the most. So, um, you know, that, that was it for me. That was the last time I looked for, um, or, or, 
questioned what I was going to do for a living for the rest of my life. And, uh, and Jericho was tough. I like, I'm not, I'm not going to act like, like those first two years um, at Jericho were the hardest two years of teaching and coaching I've ever been involved in. Um, But I also think it prepared me like it, like it was right straight into the fire and everything after that's been pretty easy. Looking at those first couple of years and we talked about a little bit with Jeff Davis and he mentioned that first JV girls team that he coached, he'd never coached a team in his life harder or more demanding than that first year. How long did it take you to kind of figure out your own voice and your own style? That's a tough, that's a tough question. I totally sympathized when I listened to Jeff talk about that because boy, I mean, I am afraid. I'm glad they don't have me on tape at age 23 coaching that first Jericho team who I could not understand why kids didn't want or learn the same way I did. They didn't want the same things. They didn't learn the the way I did. They didn't respond to things that I expected them to respond to. Um, And I have to say, like, I think I didn't really become what I would consider a good coach until after I had my own kids, because there is nothing more humbling um, than for having no control whatsoever over your four-year-old's um, and, and trying to figure out, um, how differently they learn, how differently each of your kids is motivated or turned off by, by something like really like reteaching. And, and then when I became my children's recreation basketball coach, having a gym full of seven-year-olds trying to learn how to jump stop and pivot and things like that. Um, it really made me reexamine some of the little things that I'd forgotten about, like, like figuring out like, Oh, that's why that kid goes off the wrong foot every time she shoots a layup or like I, until it got broken down to that level where I basically just had these little blobs in front of me and and they have no basketball sense whatsoever. And I'm going to teach them from the beginning. Um, that's when my high school teams got a lot better because I wasn't missing the little things. And I was really appreciating too that, huh, if I raise my voice to this child to get this point across, they step up to it and are fired up to prove to me they're going to, they're going to do it better. But this kid, when I raise my voice, curls up into a ball, probably shouldn't raise my voice at that kid. And it made me really think back about the kids that I had coached previously, like, huh, boy, I wish I could go back and, and, and handle that kid just a little bit differently than I did. I bet I could have made her such a better player, or I could have gotten her to buy in if I just approached her from a different angle. And I think becoming a parent and um, coaching lots of little kids has really um, diversified my skill set when it comes to a coach, being a coach, where I think I, it was my way or the highway when I was a young coach. You know, I just didn't, I just didn't have as much in my toolbox from an emotional, like how to connect and how to communicate with kids um, as I do now. So that, that was just, and it's a maturity thing. And it's funny because I do, when I go out and scout games and I see a brand new coach and I see that coach expressing their emotional frustration with every play happening. And I think I remember myself like that. And I just think, Oh, someday, because when you, when you yell all the time, 
it, it, it loses its impact, right? Like the kids yeah. just become numb to it like that. And, and I just didn't understand that. And um, every time a kid did something that, that frustrated me, I felt like telling them in that moment was the best way to handle it. And, and I finally started kind of tracking my teams and being like, huh, when we come out of a timeout, when I've really let them have it, how often do they step back out on the floor and play better? And the answer was pretty much almost never because their confidence was so rattled. So what could I say in timeouts that would actually enhance their confidence, get them to play better? That had to be, you know, that was a learning process for me. Um, and I think it, and it was a maturing thing for me, but um, I think all, all coaches go through it. I don't think there's any way to just jump straight to the wise, lots of tools in your toolbox kind of coaching. You got, you got to go through those young years when you're going to make mistakes. That's just how it goes. To jump ahead a little bit, I know you had a stop around Atlanta, but what eventually brought you back to the Northeast and to CVU? So we, our children, we had three children while we were living down in Atlanta. Our daughter was four. Our twin sons were one and a half. And we decided that um, if we were going to continue to be public school people, and I'm a public school kid, my husband's a public school kid from New Jersey, um, that we were going to have to find public schools that we had confidence in. Um, and I had been working in the public schools um, in uh, North Georgia at that time. And uh, that's where we were living. And I just, and we did not at the time have, have that kind of confidence there. So we were in the market. We were looking, we wanted to get back closer to family, um, which meant either the Northeast to be close to his family or the Midwest to be close to my family. Um, we, and, and he, you know, and I had three kids under the age of four. So I was not working for the, for that time period. And he got called by IDX in Burlington back then. That was uh, Jim Crook and Stephen Gorman and those guys uh, called and offered and said, you know, we think we've got a great situation up here that might be a good fit for you. And so he looked into it and I started researching schools in, um, you know, the Burlington area and uh Kind of, it, it was so. It's such a funny thing now that I think about it. I was doing all my research on a computer in in, in Georgia, over the Vermont Education website, looking at things like teacher longevity, AP classes being offered, like all the things that I knew go into a good high school. Um, and we decided to settle in the CVU district, so that's where our kids would go. And now. The, it, what's interesting is I knew for a fact, one, I, at, at age four, I didn't know if my daughter was going to want to play basketball. Um, and I knew that there was no scenario in which I would ever coach against my own kids. So, you know, I kind of figured out as my sons went into first grade um, and a part-time social studies job opened up at CVU, I thought, well, if I'm going to get back to teaching and coaching, that this is really my only choice. I like I'm going to CVU, and so I got hired as a um, part-time social studies teacher. And it took three years before I um, uh, worked my way into the coaching staff at CVU, and then um, yeah, and then it it all worked out. But that was uh, you know I I always think about it. Um, you know, there just weren't really, there wasn't going to be another opportunity for me. If I, you know, I, I, Dick Carlson is one of the 
uh, one of my assistant coaches now, and he had been the head coach at, um, at CVU for 17 years. And he actually retired the year that we moved to Vermont. And I remember reading about his um, retirement in the Burlington Free Press. And I remember thinking to myself, oh no, what if the next coach stays for 17 years? Like, I'll never find a way back into it. Like, how am I ever going to get into it when this is really my only option? Um, but it all worked out and, and it was great. And I have to, you know, I, I got the varsity job the year before uh, my daughter showed up at the high school, which, um, you know, I'd always, I think sometimes there's a assumption by people that, you know, people coach just because they're trying to do something for their own child. And what nobody knew, like I'd been a basketball coach since I was 23 years old. And my daughter coming through my program was just another, you know, it was a, an, an interesting stage of my coaching career, but it wasn't the goal or the focus or the primary reason I went into coaching at all. And, you know, I heard a lot of people express surprise after Sadie graduated that I continued to coach at CVU. And I thought, what do you mean? I was the coach before she got here. I'm going to be the coach long after she leaves here. Like, this is what I do. I don't. I didn't just do it just for my own kid. I did it for. I do it for all of the the women that come through, the young girls who come through our program. Like that is, you know, I'm. I feel like I have been blessed with really exceptional um, coaching in my life, and I feel almost like a responsibility to pass it on, right? Like when you get to experience playing a sport with a coach that just, you know, lights you up, like makes you want to be as good as you can possibly be. Um, once you've had that experience and you know how impactful that is on you, like the opportunity to be that to another kid is just, it's, it's huge. And so, um, you know, that has been, everywhere. You know, I, I laugh about it because everybody's always like, you know, if you look at my record before I got to CVU, I'm pretty sure I was still well under 500. My overall coaching, because I, I had taken over two programs that were in the cellars and our first years were, you know, five and 17 or one and 16, my very first year coaching. Like it, it is hard to get up out of 500, over 500 when you start with years like that. Um, but what is interesting is that you know, what I was doing down in Georgia that year when we were five and 17 was pretty much the same thing, like a lot of the same things that I'm doing in Vermont and we are 24 and 0. Like the, the, the connections with the players, the getting them to believe in themselves, to believe in hard work and the, and the reward of hard work, um, getting them to believe that playing like a team will always be a better experience than going out and trying to get your 20 points. Like all of that, it's the same thing I was doing down in Georgia. It just hadn't fully taken hold. And I don't think my, again, I don't think my communication skills were as um, sophisticated or, and, nor was I as sensitive to what kids needed. And then, you know, when I got, finally got the opportunity here at CVU, like all of those things just kind of came together at the, at the right time. And, you know, and I had this group of kids that I'd been coaching since second grade ascended to the high school and boy, it was, um, it was, it was kind of a dream ride. I mean, it really was where to have a group of kids so on the same page with a coach and a coaching staff like that, just, you know, that's, it's a rare thing when it happens that way. You mentioned the getting everybody to buy in 
and I kind of marked this down. When you're on that kind of a run, you know, near triple digits of wins in a row and five straight championships, Pat Riley once said what killed the Lakers was the disease of more. Okay, we got the goal. We won the championship. Now I want individual accolades. I want more. I want to find something else. How do you maintain focus with a group that has never lost before? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, those were some interesting years as far as battling complacency, battling, um, uh, you know, we we were really lucky. Um, I think about how uh, those girls that came through there, we really, we really never dealt with individual rivalries amongst the girls. Like they really, um, you know, Sadie Otley figured out that Laurel Jonick sprinting up the middle of the floor for an uncontested layup that she was going to throw a long pass to. Um, while that meant Laurel was going to score in, in double figures every night and is going to get basketball player of the year from the VBCA and Gatorade player of the year and all those things. Like never once um, did we ever have a kid think like, I don't want to throw that pass because I want to be leading scorer tonight or what have you. Like we ne- we never dealt with that. That was a, and I think that was because those, I mean, the fact that we got that group of girls through middle school without tearing each other apart, I always felt like that was where the real battle was waged for how those kids were going to treat each other. Cause middle school girls are mean, like they're just mean. And so to get them to, to see, like, stay focused on what your common goal is. Remember that, you know, you are friends, even though we are still going to really compete really, really hard with each other every day in practice at the, as we walk off the court, we are right back to being friends. Like we had to really intentionally do that. And, and for me to keep, you know, Laurel and Sadie had to guard each other every other day in practice. Like I didn't, I didn't play those two together all the time. They played together a lot in the games, but in practice they had to go at each other so that there was always this kind of balance. And there was never this feeling of, well, you know, these are the girls that, are on the floor the majority of the time and get all the accolades. And these are the girls who don't, I mean, we were, and I, if you look back at those teams, I mean, we were, I was playing 11 kids every single night. We were fleeting kids in five in five out because they were all playing with such a high level of intensity and they were all such good fundamental basketball players. Like that was, um, it was pretty seamless. Um, but that, that, you know, I think that the hardest part for us was just trying to help teach kids how to deal with the pressure, right, of every single game. By the time we got to that, the fourth year of the run, uh, which is where, you know, like where the, that fourth year was where like all the records were going to be broken, the whatever, the the Gene Robinson Essex record or what have you. Um, Every game, like, I think those kids felt like, wait, we're three years through high school. We can't lose a game now. What if we lose one now? Like, how tragic would that be? And so just really getting them to be like, you know, we didn't talk about the streak. I used to tease Adam Abram, Alex Abrami asked me all 
the time about the streak. And I'm like, we don't talk about that, Alex. I don't care what the number is. I don't want to hear it. Don't say it to me. Um, And he'd just keep asking, like, how do you keep him focused? Because we never talked about it. We talked about how are we going to win this next possession? How is this defense going to get a stop? How is our next opponent going to try to attack us? And what are we going to do differently? And just really kept the girls focused on the little things about basketball. And I'm, I'm um, very much, and I, I do, that was kind of a, my first, I mean, I, that was the first time I was dealing with that kind of pressure too. I mean, I hadn't coached teams to undefeated seasons year after year after year, like, and really diving into the details, like, okay, this team is going to try to defend us this way. How do we counteract that? What should we do? And, and focusing on that, I think kept, kept everybody's head where it needed to be because it's hard to not look ahead when people, when everybody else it feels like is looking ahead and you just, you just can't. So that's how we got through that for the most part. Take me in a little bit to your practices, especially kind of once you get into the meat of the season, what are you doing and what are you looking to accomplish out of your practices? So two things. We're, we're, there's definitely a part of practice that's dedicated to working on, on individual development. Like our post players have to be developing another post move. Our ball handlers need to be working on getting their um, change of direction moves lower and quicker. There's de- development, individual development for all the kids that are based on where they are and where, they, where we need them to be. Um, and then we're spending a good bit of time really working on team offense and team defense and really figuring out how to read each other, how to know when she's going to curl off of a screen whether versus when she's going to flare off of a screen. Like really understanding how to be a good team basketball player. And, um, you know, we get after it pretty good. I mean, I, I don't believe in spending really much time on anything that's not going to help us beat the toughest teams on our schedule. Right. Like I, like, you know, back when I was a young coach, I liked the idea of a, of a diamond press, right. A diamond trap. And so we'd throw it on and maybe we'd force a turnover here or there, or particularly when we were playing teams that were weaker than us, we would, you know, the game would be over at the end of the first quarter because we just trap them to death. But against the best teams who generally have big guards who have good good eyesight and they're going to get the ball out of that trap really, really quick. I came to the realization the diamond press isn't really never helps us win games against the best opponents we play. So why are we spending any time on it? Why am I wasting time on that defense when it's not going to help us win the big games on our schedule? And so um, really each year evaluating like what, what is the competition doing? What are they doing? Well, what are we going to have to be able to combat and that kind of dictates how what what's going to be in this year's lesson plans, for lack of a better term, and what's not. Um, and then, um, you know, I look at the calendar and I've got goals for where we're going to be by our first game. Where are we going to be by the holiday break? Where are we going to be by the end of the first round of the Metro? What are we going to have in? What are we going to be able to do? Um, and then, you know, and nowadays you really, you got to save stuff for the playoffs. So what are we saving? What are we going to hope, hope to be good at come end of February, you know, when, when it really matters and see, uh, but it's, it's very much a, um, 
you know, that's another thing that with maturity, I used to just front load the daylights out of my practices, meaning, you know, I wanted to have two offenses against man, two offenses against zone and three different defenses in by the first game. And we didn't do any of those things well for a lot of years. That yeah. was, the, those are my early years coaching. Now, like we're going to be really good at one thing on Saturday because, <laughs> because that's all we've had time to work on. Right. We've only had, we've had what uh, we had trouts for three days. So this is, we've had five, varsity practices like we're only going to be able to do one or two things against Rutland on Saturday that's the reality of it so you know I'm I don't get bunched up like if we drop some early games because you know they played some defense against us that we weren't ready to handle or or whatever like whatever like it's going to happen but what I but if I what I learned in those years when we would struggle is that it's useless for kids to to have a lot of things in their head none of which they can do well. So I'd rather them have limited things in their head and have them really do it well, because then later it's going to be so much easier for me to add those new things. Once my kids are great screeners, once my kids are great um, passers and the things that we just got to get good at, at the start, the, the games I care about are the ones in the end of February before that, like I'm going to try to help my team win every game we can, but I don't, I don't get worked up about losing games early in the season um, because I've, I've come to the conclusion it's more important for us to do what we're going to do well um, because what I can't have is, you know, nine weeks into the season, we're still not running that first offense the way we're supposed to. That just makes me crazy. So, You mentioned we just kind of got done the whole tryout week. What does kind of tryouts look like at CVU? How many girls do you have walk into the gym at the start of a season? Most, well, most years. I mean, we're down, the numbers are definitely down everywhere right now in, in high school basketball. I, I, we've a bunch of the coaches, we've all been talking about this phenomenon. Um, but it used to be, I mean, before the pandemic, I would say we generally had anywhere between 40 and 50 girls trying out for basketball. Um, we had 30 at tryouts this year. So a significant drop in, in numbers. Um, but those tryouts, you know, CVU's lucky. I mean, we're really lucky that we have four sending schools. So I have four middle schools that come to CVU. So Williston, Hinesburg, Charlotte, and Shelburne are all fielding their own middle school teams. Um, and so we've, most years we have, you know, freshmen who are coming from their relative middle school where they've had success and, um, have felt hopefully had fun and felt like they've gotten better in middle school that are competing. And generally, you know, ninth graders and 10th graders, there's usually room for them because we usually carry two JV teams and we can keep everybody involved. And then once you're heading into your junior year, that's, you know, those are usually where the hardest cuts happen, where that's when it's not enough to just to just be a good athlete and not have honed your basketball skills at that point, it won't, you won't be good enough to play or to be a kid who has just honed your skills, but you're just not a very good athlete. Same thing. Like, like the, the kids that, that get to varsity at CVU, you know, tend to have to have a combination of both those things. You have to have some athleticism and you have to have some really good skills. Um, and that, you know, and I know that that's, I mean, I talk to a lot of my friends who coach at smaller schools who are like, you know, you're crying to us about cuts and we're, we're keeping kids 
who can barely, you know, who, who have no athleticism or whatever, just because we need bodies and we don't have enough people in the gym. So I know it's a good problem to have, but, um, but tryout week is the worst week of the year without a doubt. Like it's, it's really hard, um, to, to tell a kid who's, who's been working really hard. I'm sorry, you're just not good enough and I can't keep you. Um, so those are, those are, but that's, you know, that's what varsity coaching, that's, that's the, part of the job that you, you just got to do because um yeah it it's it's never fun no matter what yeah i i can imagine and i remember seeing your teams during kind of the peak of that run and i would talk to other journalists or media people and they'd say hey if you took their bench their second five put them on the opposite side of the bracket they would play against each other for the title so that means you're probably cutting people from that team that would start on 90% of the other high school teams in the state of Vermont. That is a true statement. I, I, I don't disagree with that assessment. And I think people said it kind of, I mean, I heard that I heard someone say that to me before and I said, um, you're not wrong. And when we were at the peak in that streak, um, our practices were some of the most ferocious play we saw that year, you know, and I, uh, it's hard, it's hard to simulate that. Um, you know, we would get into games and games felt easier than our practices had felt. And when you can do that, that's when your teams are just, that's when your teams can be really, really good, but trying to find ways to challenge, um, challenge yourself like that. It, it, it's hard, but you know, I was, um, even in a situation this year, like I think, you know, I kept my this year with if you see a game this year, you'll notice that I have the largest roster I've had since I've been at CVU. Um, and the reason was is because, um, you know, I have I have 14 kids on the roster this year and some of them um, will be kids who who also get some time on JV a little bit. But we have a big roster and it came down to the fact that the difference between number nine and number 14 was minuscule and it changed every day of tryouts. The kid who, um, uh, after the first day of tryouts, I thought, okay, numbers 13 and 14 are going to go. The next day in tryouts, those kids were number nine and 10. And there were two other kids down at 13, 14. And on the third day of tryouts, it changed up again. Like there was, and so rather than just close my eyes and pick out of a hat, which two kids are not going to make this team, I decided to keep, 14. And I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I, I'm not convinced that it was the, the best long-term decision, but it definitely was the right decision for the week of tryouts. Um, and I'm hoping that there will be some clarity as the season goes on, as we get to see kids more, if we, as we get to examine matchups, we get to see kids in situations under stress, who's going to step up to the challenge and who's going to kind of shy away from it, that I'll get some clarity about what that you know, kind of first 10 or 11 player rotation looks like. Um, but right now, I mean, the competition, like our kids are going after each other right now. Nobody wants to be in that 13th or 14th spot. Everybody wants to be in the rotation. Um, so it's been good for us. I, the, and the other reality of that is, is I had that same exact thought again. I said, if I cut these two kids, I guarantee they play at half the schools we're going to play this year. 
Like there's a lot of schools where these kids will, will be contributors. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, how, like, where am I going to find her a four minute shift anywhere in a game? Because you know, I wish, oh my gosh, what I would give for high school basketball games to be 40 minutes long instead of 32 minutes long. Like it's just not enough time. And so I got to make decisions about who's going to get those minutes and who's going to practice really hard all year to sit on the bench on game night, which is, yeah, it's a tough thing to ask a kid to do. You know, hopefully the underclassmen, the kids who are uh, juniors particularly, will see the, you know, that the work they put in this year will pay off for them next year if they really continue to get after it and improve the way I think they're going to. Um, there'll be time once, the, you know, our senior class graduates maybe to, to have their moment. But it's always hard to keep those kids feeling engaged and dialed in when they're not getting the reward of, of game night play. So. I know just based on hearing you in this conversation, I can tell you're a very competitive person and you always want to win. Yep. But was there almost a sense of excitement for you when, you know, St. Jay had built up and Sadie Stetson comes about and gives you a real challenge? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I, the thing that frustrated me the most um, during our our stretch was the political or the the sports commentators who would say CBU's taken all the fun out of high school basketball, right? Like it's a it's a known situation. Like who even wants to go watch those games anymore? Like there's no there's no drama to the outcome. We know CBU's going to win. Why even go, right? And I heard people say things like that, and you know I kept thinking why, why doesn't anybody see this as the op, like the, the opportunity to lift the, the state of high school basketball here right now? Like somebody come catch us, somebody take the challenge. Cause I know when I was coaching down in Georgia at, there was a, there was a high school team called Pope, Pope high school in Cobb County that they were so dominant. They won state championship and they were in our conference. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what do we have to do to beat Pope every year? And I would get my kids so fired up and work so hard to play Pope. And like, we're going to get there. You guys, it was great having this measuring stick, this thing that we're going after. Like we are going to, we're going to catch Pope. That was um, kind of our mindset. And I felt like um, I, 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 I get it. Like I would look at other programs and I would think to themselves, like they look at us the way I used to look at Pope. Like they are coming after us. This is going to be good for high school basketball. It's going to take everybody's level up. Um, and I do think some, some schools and some teams totally accepted that challenge. And it was great. And St. Jay was a I'm I, listen. Jack Driscoll is a is a serious opponent. No matter who, whether he's got Sadie Stetson lighting it up for him or not, like he is a master tactician. And um, you know when he when his pieces came together, boy, that team was so tough. Um, it it was great. I thought it was good for high school basketball. I still think it's been good for high school basketball. I think um, having parody you know it's the same it's the same thing with the college women's game right you're watching UConn be dominant for all those years and now you see Stanford and South Carolina and and all of these other teams that have finally decided like let's figure out how to catch UConn and they have and now you've got this parody in college women's basketball that any given Saturday you can turn on ESPN and you're going to see 
great high level basketball. And that, you know, was kind of what I hope for in any situation when we're in high school, you know, and I, I wasn't here when Gene Robinson was doing that with Essex and they were just beaten, but I've heard Dick Carlson's stories. Like he's told me all about those, those Essex teams that and how close they would get and, and still not be able to get over the hump. And, but I know that that is part of what drove them to get better and get better and get better all the time. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think it's great for, for high school basketball. I would love um, to see that, you know, I, I think I speak for a lot of high school coaches when we all say like the pandemic definitely did a number on, on basketball in Vermont. And we are the sooner basketball in Vermont recovers, the happier we're all going to be. But, you know, a year and a half of, of playing in masks or, or only having a shortened season, like it kind of set back a lot of us, you know, um, and a lot of the kids development, the kids that were in middle school during that time just didn't have um, a basketball season at all. And so I think, um, you know, us all collectively around the high, around the state are trying to get kids back excited about playing basketball, being um, get convincing their parents that it's not dangerous to come back into the gym and play basketball. And, um, and, and try to reinvigorate it because there's definitely been a little bit of a waning of the enthusiasm coming out of the pandemic that, um, you know, we're all, we were, we just at our coaches clinic, we were all just talking about it. Like, where are all the kids? Like, what, why isn't anybody playing basketball? Like where, you know, where are the numbers? And, um, and I only, the only schools I've heard of that are able to field three teams this year, um, are Burlington and, uh, and Mount Abe, those are the only two that I've heard so far that have a second JV team. So hopefully um, we can build that back up here in the next couple of years. One more kind of thing before we get into some quick hitters and I'll let you go. Uh, sure. Last season was your first year, non-COVID related, that you did not make the finals. How much does that motivate you heading into this year? Well, me personally, of course I'm motivated. Like that, that I would, I would say last season did not end. Um, and, and I feel like, and I think I, I can speak for my players too. When I say that we felt like our performance in the semifinal did not reflect the kind of basketball that we had played throughout the year. So it was a, it was a, a real disappointing. I think there's definitely, you know, we've all still got a little bit of bile in our throat when we think about how last season ended. And so I think that there's um, significant motivation. But I also, um, you know, I've become very aware that it is really, um, for some kids, it is really hard to be expected to live up to the standard of CVU basketball, of these teams that have been, who literally have been lifted to mythic proportions, right? When you talk about, you know, the class of 2016 never lost a game in high school, you know, the Emily Kiniston is playing professional basketball in Europe, you know, like you're hearing these stories and these kids are coming in and they just want to be the best basketball player they can be. And so, you know, my goals for this year's team is that they figure out how to play the best basketball they're capable of together as a group and that they develop both as individuals and as a team in ways that they make each other better, right? And if that translates into 
us making it to the finals, then great. And if it doesn't, because our best basketball is just not going to be good enough to get to the final four, or it's not going to be good enough to get to the championship game, then, you know, I'm going to find a way to be okay with that too. Like I can't, I expecting, you can't expect every freshman that walks into that school to be the next Catherine Gilwee or the next Emily Kiniston. Like you just can't, uh, it's not fair to those kids, uh, to try to live up to the expectations of the kids who came before them. Um, but rather to have their own, what's, what's your best version of basketball going to look like. And so trying to take that down a little bit, because I do think that our, you know, there's a point where program success starts to be a deterrent right? Kids don't come out. I can't get freshmen who played in the middle school to try out at CVU because they are like, oh no, you know, CVU's team is way too good. And I don't want to play, you know, there's a perception that you have to play year round, that basketball has to be your only thing or you can't make the team at CVU. And that's nonsense. That's not true. But I think that's the impression um, that kids have gotten because of the success. So trying to dispel those misconceptions and have kids set reasonable expectations for themselves has been a really important kind of shift for us. Well said. Uh, who are a couple of your favorite officials when you see them walk into the gym, <laughs> you say, Oh, okay. I'm happy. Um, Oh boy. Is that, that's a tough, they're going to listen to this. I got to, that's why I, I said I'm favorite. Gonna so, I'm going to leave somebody out and I'm going to get in such trouble. Um, well, I figure it's better okay, than saying who are the ones you regret seeing walk in right, the gym. Right, so. right. Okay. I would say Kate Burrell always officiates a great game. I'd say Mike Lubis always officiates a great game. Um, I have to say that some of the – I'm not even sure if some of these refs are still refing, but when I used to see – because I haven't seen them in the last couple of years. Um, you know, Chris Magistrali always does a really good job. Ali Berenchia, I haven't seen in a while, but the last couple of times I saw her ref, I was really impressed. Um, you know, I th- listen, there are very few refs in Vermont that I think um, are not doing a great job. I mean, I, I mean, and I mean that honestly, like I get like there's definitely some refs that are not as experienced as others. Yeah. But they're all like, I generally get the feeling they're all doing the very best they possibly can on any given night. And um, I think that they generally are fair. I haven't seen a whole lot of refing that I like, you know, that idea that you're getting homered when you're on the road because the refs are, you know, just trying to please the home crowd. Like, I don't, I don't see that here. And, and I have to say that I feel like um, at, even in my first year as someone new who just came, you know, showed up out of nowhere, had no relationship with, with anybody really in Vermont basketball. Like I feel like in a, di- a very different way than what I experienced in Georgia, I felt like all the referees kind of showed me respect right out of the gate and, and treated me as someone, you know, as someone who was there trying to do her job to the best of her ability. So I think there's a lot of good ones out there. And I know I didn't name all of them, all of the ones I should have, but um, you know, I gave you at least four off the top of my head that, that I know do a good job every time I see them. Who are some of the coaches you coach against that you always know you're going to see something that you're going to want to go back, watch on tape and see if you can steal it. Ooh. Oh my gosh. Well, if I told you the number of things, I mean, I got, we've got stuff in our playbook right now that I stole from coaches around here. Um, I 
yeah, I can, it's, it's so fun uh, here at the beginning to see everybody. I'm, I'm really curious to see what Jade Huntington's going to be doing at St. Jay. I'm really, um, you know, that, that, that feels so unpredictable to me because I felt like I knew what Jack wanted to do all the time. And now, you know, Jade's got her own thing going. So I gotta, I gotta figure, I gotta figure that one out. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be stuff that I'm going to want to poach. Um, you know, I, I always take out of bounds plays from Essex and Sean at Essex pretty much on a regular basis. Um, I remember even uh, watching Ori the first time Ori was at Rice, not, not even this recent time, but the first time he was at Rice when he was coaching Kelly Hire and those kids. Uh, I definitely stole some stuff out of his playbook. I just, I, there are a lot of a good coaches with interesting takes um, and I feel like, you know, in high school basketball, like you never know what you're going to have. So you got to constantly be looking for, oh, what happens when I when I don't have a kid over five, nine? What happens when all my kids are over five, nine and I don't have a decent ball handler? Like you've always got to be uh, looking for something new because you, if, if you don't, um, you know, you're going to get a group of kids that can't do what your last group of kids could do. And you're just going to be stuck. So I think we're all stealing from each other all the time. Absolutely. Uh, give me three of the best players that you got to coach against here in Vermont. Sadie Stetson. I'm still racking my brain on figuring out how to guard her without giving up a three to one of her teammates. Still, still never figured that out. She got, she graduated without me figuring that out. Um, Haley Barron, her pick and roll play forced me to go to a clinic (laughs) to find new ways to defend the pick and roll. Um, I would give her the number. Yeah, she's definitely in my top three. Um, and then let's see who else has caused me such like sleepless nights. Um, but those two, those two were, were front and center in my brain for a really long time. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been great post players too. I mean, I'd say Sheftik, um, the youngest chef, Sheftik, Alyssa, uh, oh, I don't want to get her first name wrong. I know it starts with an A. I want to say Alyssa Sheftik. Um, the youngest one, she, when she was at Essex, we really had to change the way we played post defense to, to contain her because she was just so physical and um, such a force for them. I would say those, those three kids Wow. All of them. Um, yeah. Kept me, kept me staring at the ceiling, uh, on, on several nights. Give me a few of your best team players you've had that would probably never show up in a box score, Mm -hmm. but the team wouldn't have been the same without them being a part of it. Yep. Number one, I'm going to say Maddie Randall, Madison Randall, who, did not start for us until the final four of her senior year. Um, had been a had been a a role player in the second line forever, but was such a great team basketball player. Was the kid who always would get in position to take the charge. She was the kid who caught everything. I came out of every scrum with the ball, um, and just just a great all. But again, like. You'd never, you'd walk, you'd watch us warm up and you wouldn't even notice that kid um, and wouldn't think anything of her, but boy, did she make a difference for the team. Um, Jamie Vachon, who uh, was a senior on our 2017 
championship team um, that I um, almost cut her junior year uh, because I just, at her junior year, she'd been, she'd suffered an ACL injury and had missed a lot of time. She was slow footed. And I thought this kid will never play for us. I really did. I had that thought. She'll never play for us. Her junior year, she played, I don't know, maybe six to eight total minutes all season. And she fought her way into the starting lineup her senior year and her and and literally was the difference between us beating St. Jay and us not beating St. Jay for that state championship. And and, you know, that year, Marley Gunn and Abby Thutt got all the headlines because they were our leading scorers and our leading rebounders. And we had a junior Shannon Loazzo who was blocking shots and and be, and nobody paid attention to Jamie Vashon. But boy, there's no way. There's no way we win without her. Um, I think those those kids um, who, again, like they kind of epitomize that I'm here for the team and whether I get individual accolades or not just doesn't matter. Um, those kids are just so valuable. Do you have a go to snack on a long bus ride? Peanut butter M&Ms. And our final question we do. If you're headed out to dinner and you can bring four coaches with you. Who's getting an invite? Can they be dead? Yes. They don't have to be living currently? Okay, It's so an open-ended, open-for-interpretation question. Fantastic. I'm taking John Wooden. I'm taking Gino Oriema. Um, I'm probably going to take uh, Tara Vanderveer from Stanford. And um, if it's going to blow up the, the dinner... I, I hesitate, uh, but I've got some unresolved questions for Bob Knight that I feel like I would, if I, if I could get him to behave at dinner and, and give everybody their proper respect, then I would want him there. If I couldn't, then, then I'd, I'd go in a different direction. But those are all uh, people who I would love um, to, to be able to ask. You know, I've read everything I can read about John Wooden, everything. Um, his book on principles of basketball was the very my, actually my father-in-law gave me a copy of that book when I got my first job at Jericho. And I have that thing is the binding is about to come out of it. I have gone back to it over and over and over again. And um, oh, what I would give for a two hour dinner to to pick his brain about um, and the things and a lot of it isn't it's not offense defense stuff. It is. Again, like how do you get – he was really good at how to get players to buy into the team concepts. Those are the things um, – I just think he was masterful on that. But I want to I hear how Gino gets his kids to play so hard. I want to hear from Tara. Um, I think she's probably the best, best X's and O's person I have seen ever. And then Bob Knight, I just feel like um, what I loved about him when I was – watching as a kid that I would love to know more about is I felt like he got lesser athletes to play beyond their perceived abilities all the time. Um, and I just, I would love to have like figure out what, what it was, how he built that up in them and got them to play the way they did. All right, coach. Thank you so much for so much of your time and hopping on the show with us. You bet. This has been so much fun talking basketball all day. Not yeah. a bad way to spend the afternoon. Absolutely. And I could talk to you for another couple hours and hopefully <laughs> we'll get a part two sometime. 
Sounds great. Thanks, Tom. This brings a conclusion to this week's episode. If you want to be a part of the No Fouls family and be a sponsor of our show, send us an email, uncommonmediavt at gmail.com. Make sure you check out all the Uncommon Media podcasts, the Uncommon Deeds podcast, as well as the New Sports Order podcast. Check out all the social media pages, No Fouls Pod on Facebook, Uncommon Media VT on Facebook as well. We will be back next week with another new episode of No Fouls.